Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Huge, huge credit losses rippling through this market over the last couple of weeks. Pleased to say the wang in now. Steve Whiting, City Private Bank, Global Chief Investment Strategist. Steve, always great to catch up with you. Your focus on credit right now, how much stress are you seeing? And is it still too, too, far too premature to think about stepping in? Well, look, I think that there's some interesting dichotomies taking place that functioning in the market seems to be quite bad. And we can think about what some of those reasons are uh, in terms of secondary market trading for um, fixed income generally, not just U.S. credit. But we're also seeing primary issues. For example, we've seen a good number of corporate bond issues, investment-grade companies come to market uh, and end investors were there to buy those bonds um, at relatively reasonable spreads. Some of the um, stronger issues at lower absolute yield, higher spreads uh, than we have seen previously. You know, I think um, the credit issue is a whole separate dimension of negatives for the U.S. economy, something that must, you know, again, be prepared and for us be repaired and must um, ultimately should be targeted by policymakers as we have seen. But there are some just very interesting divergences here that I think have to be taken into account as well. And certainly the severity uh, that we are seeing in terms of just price action and, and outflows, you know, those sorts of things don't tell the whole story. Well, Steve, let me jump in. How do you draw a distinction between a market that's signaling functioning issues and a market that's signaling credit stress? It's very difficult. Um, and again, part of this is just coming to grips with how bad this shock is to the economy. Getting the news that we did out of uh, you know, Russia and OPEC, for example, came at a time when we were vulnerable. And we were vulnerable because the uh, speed and severity of the shock has been moving, has been uh, very, very difficult to pin down, as you just went through the story on California. Um, you know, we know what happened in China. Its economy in the first quarter is about 5% smaller than it was in the year earlier period. You know, and that's after a good deal of growth. Um, and, you know, we have 16 million people working in restaurants and hotels in the United States, you know, which are just grinding to an absolute halt. Um, so uh, trying to figure out um, exactly what the environment is and what the credit default situation will be and what the policy response can be, right, to mitigate that. And on one side, it's the severity that, that comes from when the health system uh, is going to be a good enough shape for us uh, to, to emerge from our bunkers. Uh, and the other side is, you know, what we will do to um, essentially build a bridge over it with policy and, and help companies avoid those defaults. So it's a simultaneous equation. It's evolving very, very fast. Um, and I think we should be a little bit humble about trying to, to assess this impact, you know, beyond guessing. Steve, there is the fiscal impact and the idea of how you address the economic declines in the wake of the coronavirus. And then there's the functioning, the market functioning aspect of this. And there are a lot of questions about the Federal Reserve and their intervention. How much can the Fed backstop the corporate debt market as Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen come out and call for them to start buying corporate debt? So look, um, the use of special purpose vehicles, right, for troubled assets, as an example, in the um, 0809 crisis. And I think, you know, again, they are moving faster to reignite these types of programs. Um, and that sort of thing, again, will 
uh, make it, I think, faster for them to provide credit uh, in a way with, uh, again, the cooperation of Treasury. Um, I think we're showing some signs of success already. Primary dealer financing uh, facility, um, the commercial paper financing facility, these sorts of things, you know, that don't get directly involved in changing the Fed's mandate and debating debating that uh, can be helpful. And, you know, in the fiscal response, I think, again, importantly, how much you spend. If you can turn, you know, um, what might be long-term unemployment into a short-term furlough, you will save money for the taxpayer on this. By making this, the more overwhelming the response is over the short term, the less I think that you will will actually cost uh, taxpayers ultimately. Steve, when we talk about the outflows, John was mentioning the unprecedented outflows from investment-grade bond funds, the unprecedented losses in both investment-grade and high-yield bonds, there is a question of what you do as an investor. and, And, you know, John was referencing this, which is, when do you start to nibble at this is the move to just go to cash right now? Is that just the playbook for everybody, including yourself? I think no. I I think, again, selling into illiquid markets at potentially fire sale prices, you know, is something that you you want to avoid being in that place in the in the first place. Again, you want to have a portfolio, and I can't say that that's what everyone has going in, but that you could live with regardless of how irrational market pricing may be. You know, how far, how bad this goes uh, in terms of irrational pricing, you know, we can't say. You know, what's the low in the oil price? Well, give it away for free. Um, that's the low. That's how uh, you can't really say for sure that you will be able to sell a particular asset at a particular period of time. But if you have enough high quality uh, assets uh, going into events like this, you don't have to sell now. That's been the advice of City Private Bank going into this. Uh, and uh, I think it would be a bad time you know, to sell investments if you didn't uh, you know, make big mistakes going in. Hey, Steve, great to catch up. Appreciate you taking the time to get your views on the air this morning. Steve Whiting there, City Private Bank Global Chief Investment Strategist. Let's bring in Patrick Armstrong, shall we? Plurimi Wealth CIO. Patrick, always great to catch up with you. I asked this question a little bit earlier in the program to Steve Whiting of City, and he said it's really difficult to do. How do you draw a distinction between a market signaling a functioning issue and credit risk, credit stress? How do you do that right now in fixed income, Patrick? Um, <clears throat> very difficult. And you, you've mentioned liquidity, I think, several times in the lead into that question. And uh, people want liquidity right now. They're running away from anything where they don't know what it is with certainty. And the only thing you know with certainty is if you've got your money in U.S. dollars in cash, um, you know what you've got at least. And markets f- function best when uh, people are willing to give up that safety of cash and put their capital to work, uh, expecting a higher return. So inflation is one way you punish people who have their money in cash. And I actually think that's probably where things are going to go. We're in an environment now where there's going to be massive fiscal stimulus. There's going to be much lower tax receipts. And uh, we've already got debt to GDP in the U.S. at 100 last year. And uh, that's going one direction. So I'm actually thinking the longer-term treasuries, they've sold off about 12% since March 9th. But that's from a completely overbought situation. I don't know if you need to add liquidity into the treasury market um, as a function of just being overbought. Can we talk about the credit market? Central banks have really struggled to put a floor under credit markets. The ECB has stepped in big time this week, Patrick. Do we just trust them that they can get this done with a package this big? 
Usually it's a bad idea to uh, just basically buy what the, the central banks are trying to stabilize because it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to stabilize. The bond market and the credit market even is difficult, but it is a, a floor under credit right now for what the ECB do, has done. Uh, the Fed hasn't done that yet. That's probably the one lever they still can pull at some point if we do see credit spreads continue to widen out. We've been adding a bit of credit recently. Um, we've bought some the liquid LTF we bought uh, about a week ago, and uh, moving into corporate credit as you are getting some spreads widening. Junk we haven't bought yet, but when you've got spreads of 800 basis points, it's been pretty rare that you've lost money just because when companies do go bankrupt, it's not zero recovery typically. And I don't see why this situation would be different in most industries we're looking at. So we've not really added junk yet, but it's something we're looking at because the spreads are very wide. Let's unpack that a little bit more, the idea that you are starting to buy investment-grade debt. Can you give us more of a sense of what you're looking for in order to buy and whether this is basically a belief that the credit risk aspect of this has been overpriced uh, or, or sort of overstated by the liquidity pressure? Yeah, I think liquidity pressures definitely put spreads out very wide, and uh, the ETFs are very instrumental that they give you liquidity on underlyings that may not be quite as liquid. And you, when we've been buying an LQD ETF, uh, we've been purchasing it below the NAV on what the bonds are trading at just because there's so many sellers there. In Europe, we've been buying short-term bank debt. Um, in Europe, I've been used to having a negative carry on my cash positions and now with bank spreads widening out, even on two-year paper from banks, you're getting positive uh, returns in euros. And I actually feel very safe with the bank debt. I think the stress tests that have been put in place are real. Reserve requirements are very strong. And uh, the off-balance sheet liabilities from 2008 and derivatives trading, prop desk risk, all of those things have really been uh, mitigated, I think, with regulations over the last 10 years. So, Patrick, my signal that I take from that particular trade is you're more worried about an earnings recession that would hit the equity than you are about a balance sheet issue that would hit the debt? Um, yeah, the earnings are going to be decimated for a lot of industries in Q2. And uh, we're not looking at PEs because I don't think anyone knows where the earnings are going to be for a lot of these companies. But equities are looking attractive on price to book, and that's a much more stable measure. On EBITDA, that's about as far down as I want to look on the revenue statement. And uh, EV to EBITDA a month ago, the S&P 500 had never traded at a higher multiple and uh, with a 30% sell-off almost. We're down to almost normal on EV to EBITDA, so the EBITDA will probably be overstated still on estimates, but it's uh, not as volatile as the earnings side of things. Patrick, what you're saying makes a lot of sense based on history. Unfortunately, in the past two weeks, history has been basically thrown out the window and we've seen every record broken uh, pretty much across the board just in terms of the speed in which this has hit. And I'm wondering what gives you confidence that history will provide a guide, history of earnings, history of recoveries at a time when we have never seen this before, the entire global developed market basically shut down? Yes, um, it's going to be an unprecedented hit to GDP, I think, in the United States. So I think probably Q2 GDP will be the worst number ever. But we're dealing with the impact and prevention of a spread of a virus that I'm fully confident we get past. So there's developments in treatment. There's definitely going to be developments in a vaccine. It's a short, sharp, very painful hit to the economy. But I'm very, very confident we get past it. I'm not sure when. But I think every day with uh, the steps that are being put in terms of isolation and quarantining and all the efforts from drug companies on treatments and fast-tracking things there, this isn't going to be a permanent solution, uh, 
permanent headwind for the economy. So I think it's anything that has an asset value isn't going to be totally decimated because it is short and sharp, and I expect the rebound to be very sharp as well when we do get past it. Patrick, the question I'm about to ask is deserving of a very long conversation, so forgive me, you've only got 45 seconds. I remember the conversations that we had going all the way back to the Eurozone debt crisis years and years ago, and your views on Greece. Are your views the same as they were on Greece then, on some of these companies, these industries now, asking for a bailout? Um, I don't think you should be bailing out a lot of these companies right now. Um, I think the airlines are getting a lot of press with all the share buybacks they've done, and that's an industry Trump's alluded to, that uh, they would be front of the line for a bailout. Um, the, The employees, the bondholders, maybe... Those are the parts of the capital structure and uh, basically participants of the companies that maybe deserve the bailout. The equity holders, I think when you buy equity, you get the upside, but you should have to take the pain of the downside as well. So I think bailouts should come in the form of nationalizations where governments take equity stakes in companies if they are giving them loans, um, much as we've seen in the banks in Europe, things like that. It's not necessarily good news for an equity holder, but it's good news for the citizens and for other stakeholders. Patrick, great to get your views on the programme. Looking forward to catching up soon. Stay close, won't you? Patrick Armstrong there, Plurumi Wealth, CIO. If you think of equities have been volatile, check out everything else. Crude this week, Wednesday, we had a drop of 24%. Thursday, we had a rally of 24%. And finally, things have quietened down just a little bit, which means that Francisco Blanche gets to take a deep breath and give us some of his time on this program. Bank of America Global Head of Commodities and Derivatives Research. Francisco, I have one question that's been on my mind through the week. How close are we to breaching storage capacity in some of these big, big producers, some of these countries around the world? Um, hey, uh, Jonathan, thanks for having me. I, I think there's, um, there's a risk we get there within the next, uh, within the next uh, uh, couple of months. Um, but uh, remember, um, the, the hardest part of this crisis is that we don't know how much of a demand drop we're going to experience in the, uh, in the second quarter. Um, we, are, we are talking about a 12% GDP contraction in the U.S. ourselves, but I've seen all kinds of estimates. Uh, some people call them guesstimates, and I think it's a, it's a good word because um, the, 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 the demand contraction will ultimately determine the uh, supply demand imbalance because we, we know where supply is more or less. We know that Saudi Arabia is having an extra couple million barrels a day during the price war. The Russians are going to put some more oil on the market. And we've seen Abu Dhabi also increasing their production estimates for April by a million barrels a day. So we have a pretty clear picture of the supply side. We just really are having a hard time determining how much of a demand contraction we'll get. Remember, we have a hundred million barrel a day market in oil. So uh, every percentage point of GDP, you know, can be easily translated into some kind of demand contract, uh, contraction here. Um, so so to, to answer your question, it, it's, it's very difficult to say, but it could happen within the next uh, two to four months if production volumes stay at these levels. Francisco, when we talk about the oil market, you have on one side the complete fall off in demand with result of the shutdown stemming from the coronavirus. And then you have the tiff between Saudi Arabia and Russia, where you have an acceleration of production. The implication from what you are saying is that the Russia-Saudi Arabia issue has basically already been factored in. We already have a sense of that side of the equation, even if there is a possibility of them coming to some agreement. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we've we've had a, a 
we factor in for sure the, the price war uh, between Russia and Saudi Arabia. What we haven't been able to factor in is how much of a, of a demand collapse the, the world is going to experience. Uh, yesterday, we heard the news on California shutting down, uh, similar to uh, to uh, uh, Spain and Italy. Um, but we're going to hear more of this news, I think, over the next uh, over the next few uh, weeks. And ultimately, remember. Um, Everyone is kind of shooting for a, for a V-shaped recovery into the third quarter, um, but uh, but it's not clear that's going to happen either. Because once once we have uh, there, there's two things that really make it difficult on the demand side. One is the, the initial demand contraction rate, and and we don't know what that's going to look like. Then the second thing that makes it very hard to to determine this is how long this is going to last. Uh, because remember, if the world goes into lockdown for let's say a month we are going to be able to get rid of this virus. But if we get lockdowns, uh, partial lockdowns, one in California, then three weeks later in New York, a week later in somewhere else, and a week later in Canada, you know, the, the, the virus will keep rolling from place to place to place. So, so it's, it's, an, it's very hard to say when, when, uh, when we'll be able to come back to a normal economy. I think that's what we are really struggling with. Well, uh, let's we'll, talk we'll about in, what could happen to crude prices, yeah. Francisco, because I agree with you. The big unknown right now is longevity. And unless you can get your hands around longevity, you've got no idea how to model anything at the moment. Jeff Curry came on this show from Goldman, a peer of yours, and I'm sure perhaps a friend as well, talking about what yeah. would happen with crude and the characteristics of commodities as an asset class and how they differ to, say, equities. Equities an anticipatory asset class. And in commodities, you've got a clear demand of supply at spot. Now, if you're talking about storage costs, storage rather, storage capacity being breached in a couple of months, help me understand how price responds in that environment. Is that just a sudden drop from 20 down towards one? What does that look like? Yeah, so, so essentially, uh, we've seen it in natural gas, for instance, in, in the Permian Basin. Natural gas is a very good example. Now, it's a bit more extreme than oil, right? But uh, it's a more volatile commodity. It's a lot harder to store. Uh, it's harder to store a gas than, than a liquid or, or a solid uh, item, right? Uh, but in the case of in the case of gas, we saw prices go negative last year in in the Permian Basin because we produced all this gas uh, that was associated to shale oil production didn't have any value. Prices went negative. Eventually, we shut down uh, pretty much all the all the gas production we could. Eventually, um, we um, uh, we found uh, we built pipelines to transport it to to market centers. So this is the kind of commodity behavior you can have occasionally. Now, I don't think that Saudi Arabia and Russia are going to be paying us to drive, uh, Jonathan. So I don't think we need to worry too much about that. But, but I do believe that Saudi Arabia and Russia, when they went into a price war uh, uh, a few days ago, they were prepared for a price meltdown. They had to be. right? I mean, when you increase production in the midst of, of what's looking to be one of the worst demand crises ever, you have to be prepared for prices to drop into the 20s. So it's not clear to me we're going to have a truce uh, tomorrow here. Um, I think maybe we have it within within three months. Uh, so it's going to be a supporting factor for the market for sure once that happens. But uh, but but prices will keep dropping on a spot basis, and and forward prices will hold up, which is what will encourage the storage uh, until yeah. you cannot store it anymore. And and that's when the prices really fall off a cliff. And that's the situation I think Saudi Arabia and Russia will try to avoid at all costs, in my opinion. Really smart stuff, Francisco. Appreciate your time. And my best to the team over at Bank of America as well. Francisco Blanche there, Bank of America Global Head of Commodities and Derivatives Research. 
you know, one of the things investors are trying to parse is they just kind of you know, drink through this uh, fire hose of information that's coming at us day to day is what will be the longer term, intermediate term and longer term impacts to the U.S. economy from the effects of the coronavirus? Will it be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, an L-shaped, you know, or maybe some other letter that we haven't thought of? To help us get the latest, we welcome uh, Michelle Meyer. She's Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, head of U.S. economics. She joins us today. Michelle, thanks so much for joining Lisa and myself. So what, what's your thinking right now as to maybe the next couple of quarters of U.S. economic uh, productivity going forward? Sure. Um, hi, everyone, and thank you for having me. Um, so, you know, Q1 at, at this point, we already had January and February data, which looked pretty things pretty pretty good, all things considered. It was really before the, the, the shock um, hits the economy from the coronavirus. But the early March data has already shown a softening. So for Q1, we think we'll have a slight positive 0.5% um, growth, but we think Q2 is going to be really painful. We're looking for a steep drop in economic activity in the second quarter with growth falling 12% on an annualized basis. Wow. Now, that is – yeah, that's a wow. That's a wow. Um, that's, the, that's the biggest drop – we will have seen in post-war history it goes back to 1958 where we had a 10% drop on an annualized basis. Um, and frankly, it's not hard to get those types of numbers considering the extent to which the economy right now is effectively shutting down. You, know, you have a number of cities that have put in place quarantine efforts. Um, restaurants are closing. Stores are closing. Um, we've had a big wealth shock as well given what's happened in the markets, and that tends to lead people to want to save more and spend less. Um, the manufacturing economy has been hit, given that this is a global shock, and factory chain factories have been impacted, and the, and the supply chain has been affected. So, there are a number of um, components to this shock that are all kind of working together that generate a very weak economy in the next few months. Next okay. few months, yeah, <laughs> right, Paul. So that, that's the question. That's right. That's right. So, so Michelle, that's Q two. A lot of people are saying, okay, Q2, I can, you know, that's, it is what it is. How about Q3 and 4? Is it a V? Is it a, you know, kind of a U? Is it a L? How do you, is it, or is it all just contingent upon how this thing continues to spread? So there's two variables you would look at to try to determine that, and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through that and what our baseline forecast is. So the first one, of course, is, as you said, how the virus spreads. When do you see the peak in the rate of new infections? When does it start to look like we've reached the part of the curve where things are moving sideways in terms of infection rates and actually people are starting to be cured and uh, we're on the other side? So it's hard to have any confidence about that, of course. But if you look at the timeline in China, you know, you can make the case that perhaps by the end of April, maybe early May, we can be at that point, hopefully, if, um, you know, we, we take the, the right steps here um, to contain the virus. Now, the next thing you, you want to look at is the policy response, right? We're, having, we see, we're going to see a very big shock to the, to the economy. Private sector growth is going to slow. People will be without income. Um, businesses will be without revenue. So the, the idea is do you have a strong enough response from the federal government? Is there a big fiscal response that can pump the money into the economy and offset that weakness? The other very important component is, will the financial system hold intact, right? That's what the Fed is really focused on right now. They want to make sure that there's market functioning, that there's liquidity in the Treasury market, that there's a flow of credit. So in a sense, you can make the case that the Fed is worrying about 
the 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 liquidity and the credit crunch in the markets and the federal government is worrying about credit in the real economy. And if both of those things if they're successful on both of those, then yes, the recovery will happen. Um, but the, of course, there's a lot of things that that need to go right, and we need to see pretty aggressive measures here. Our baseline view is that we do start to see a turn higher in early summer. Um, we think in the third quarter we will have positive GDP growth of three percent. Um, now you have base effects that are working more favorably, right? You have such a big level shock is what we're we're expecting. Even incremental improvement on an annualized basis from quarter to quarter, you will see some growth. So I would say it's not a V-shaped recovery by our estimates, but it is a recovery. One question that I haven't heard a lot talked about is the effect of the global slowdown on the United States. I mean, there is an idea, there was at least when the trade war was heating up, that the U.S. was somewhat isolated from it, or at least a little more immune than other economies. And yet we are hearing about supply chain disruptions that are ongoing. We're hearing about the slowdown that's in Europe right now with the U.K. uh, possibly extending their self-isolation or their social distancing policies. We don't know what that means. Means, but through the end of this year, how much of a feedback loop are you expecting on a sort of international front? Yeah, so that raises a very important point, which is this is not just a shock that's hit the U.S., right? It is hit global. And in fact, we're, you know, kind of later um, in, in the process when you think about how this is spread through the, the global economy. Um, so, so when you have a global shock, that means it hits the financial system globally. It impacts the flow of credit globally, which is very important in what we saw during the 2008 crisis, um, which became global very, very quickly. Um, and also the, the ability to see the flow of goods and services across borders, which are not happening right now, which creates a high level of inefficiencies. So for the time being, you should be assuming that globally the economy is in a recession. It is across the board, and um, borders will be largely closed. Um, but the hope is that once you get to their side, once the recovery starts, you can start to see a flow of goods again. You can start to see greater efficiencies. And what brought the global economy down, hopefully in the end, will help to recover it in unison. Michelle Meyer, thank you so much for being with us. Stay safe and healthy. Michelle Meyer, ahead of U.S. economics at Bank of America Securities, joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.